Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. Heavenly Father, thank you for your presence in this place. Thank you for your goodness to us that is poured out uh, in Jesus Christ on the cross. We pray, God, that now as we turn our attention to your word, uh, that you would uh, illuminate not only our minds for understanding, but God, also illuminate our hearts for receiving your word, uh, that you might form us and shape us more into your likeness. Uh, So God, be with us in these moments together, we pray, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to read to you John chapter uh, 19, uh, beginning with verse 16, and then I'm going to read through verse, 620, or verse 24. Uh, and then, uh, after I'm done reading, I'm going to say this is the word of God for the people of God, and I would invite your response uh, of saying, thanks be to God. Uh, and so let's uh, look at the passage of Scripture together. It's John chapter 19, beginning with verse 16. It says this, Finally, Pilate handed him over uh, to them to be crucified. And so the soldiers took charge of Jesus, and carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him uh, with two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Now many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. Now the chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. And when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one uh, for each of them with the undergarment remaining. And this garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. And this happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, They divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. And so this is what the soldiers did. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Ancient, uh, ancient Rome was a great place as long as you were Roman. Uh, but if you weren't Roman, then... Rome was a cruel and unforgiving oppressor. In fact, if you've ever seen the Hunger Games series, uh, read or seen the films, uh, Rome was a lot like the capital. Uh, To the blessed residents of the capital, it is a place of abundance, wealth, and entertainment. But to those living outside of the capital, it is seen as the most evil of oppressors. Uh, often resorting to violence and manipulation in order to maintain their position of privilege and dominance. And if so, the capital, uh, this in the Hunger Games, was certainly uh, Rome in the ancient world. Uh, Not only had they captured most of the known world by military conquest, they had also uh, held the world prisoner through fear. And if you understand ancient history and and the, the Roman Empire, you need to understand one phrase. Uh, And the phrase is this. The phrase is Pax Romana, uh, which is Latin for the peace of Rome. 
And the peace of Rome is, is not the peace of uh, the Jewish people, which they called shalom. Uh, the, the peace of the Jewish people, the shalom, was uh, a wholeness, uh, a, a completeness where all of your life was at peace, where your relationships were, were in good order and restored, where your, your health was good, uh, you were well cared for and taken care of. It spoke to this wholeness of peace. This is a different kind of peace than it was for the Roman Empire. Uh, the Pax Romana was the absence of conflict, or you could also say it was this. It was peace through the threat of violence. Uh, Which is to say the peace of Rome was if you go against the way of Rome or the Roman Empire, then you will certainly be punished. And so it was peace through the threat of violence. Now throughout world history, there has always been a Rome. Before the Roman Empire, it was the Persian Empire. Uh, After Rome, it was the Byzantine Empire. And now it's Well, I'll let you decide. The challenge for the people of God has always been this, at least as it's narrated through Scripture, the the challenge for the people of God has always been, how do we live faithfully in the midst of empire? And that's a really important question. How do we live faithfully in the midst of empire? And the particular answer really uh, to that question will, dif- will be different based on which side of the empire that you find yourself on. And so throughout history, as, as the people of God were being oppressed by an empire, uh, the prophet would, all, all, would, would often say, go and try to your best to be a blessing to your oppressors, for in their blessing you are also blessed. And then sometimes in Scripture, it's actually the people of God who become the empire, who, who become the oppressors, and then the prophets have a whole different message for them. And it's a key question. How do the people of God live faithfully as the people of God in the midst of an empire? Well, today I, I want to submit that the answer for us, I believe, lies right in the center of our faith. And the center of our faith, I submit to you, is the cross of Jesus Christ. Uh, This is why we, among with many other churches all around the world, uh, place a cross at the center of our sanctuary. And there's all sorts of logistical considerations when you are thinking about placing a cross, but the most appropriate place to, to put a cross in a sanctuary is actually somewhere right around here where all of us are, are gathered around and centered around the cross of Jesus Christ. And, and if we were bold enough to do that this morning, it would be this way of embodying the reality that's central to our faith and the very reason we have gathered together this morning on a cold, rainy fall morning is because the cross of Jesus Christ is absolutely central to the practice of faith. Everything that precedes the death of Christ in the scriptures is actually leading us to and preparing us for this moment where the Son of God would become crucified. And then everything after, uh, you could look at it this way, that if the cross is central, and this is the Old Testament, everything going up to this point is leading us to the cross, the entire story. And then, then the cross happens, and we read about that in our passage this morning in John chapter 19. And then everything that follows after it in the New Testament and all of history up to this point has been, what in the world do we do with now the cross of Jesus Christ? 
It's commentary on what do we do with a crucified and resurrected Messiah. And so the cross truly is the center of the story and the center of our faith. We just got done last weekend celebrating uh, uh, the, the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. It was started by this, this young revolutionary named Martin Luther. And uh, Halloween was all Hallows Eve. That's how we come up with the word Halloween. It's kind of this... this uh, smashing together of the phrase All Hallows Eve and then November 1st, All Saints Day and then today, All Saints Sunday. And so thinking about the Reformation and Martin Luther, Martin Luther was echoed really the sentiment of many of our church fathers when he said, when he said this, we have no theology but the cross. It's absolutely central. In fact, the cross is one of the most universally recognized symbols in the world. But maybe what we don't often think about is that the cross is one of the most universally recognized symbols in the world and always has been. You see, for us, from, from the bumper stickers in suburbia to the gold chains around the necklaces of athletes, the cross, for us, is, is very recognizable, and it's, it, it permeates our culture. But it, what we need to also recognize is that for many cultures previous to this, the cross was also universally recognized. But let's not forget that while it means for us and symbolizes for us the love of Christ and the love of God poured out, that what it symbolized for many of the cultures cultures before us was it was a device recognized to shame and to kill those who threatened Pax Romana. It was a, it was a device used to shame and to kill anyone who would threaten the peace of Rome. And so it was certainly a universally recognized symbol, but not of the love of God. It was rather a universally recognized symbol of the fear of Rome. And so the cross really was this way that Rome used to shame anyone who would proclaim a message that was different from their own. In fact, this is why we find that this Jewish Messiah, this this, this revolutionary named Jesus eventually finding himself on the cross himself is because his ministry, his message, his life embodied and proclaimed this way that was fundamentally different than the Roman way. While Rome was, was, was preaching, aren't we the greatest and we have brought the world peace through the threat of violence and through fear, Jesus was saying we ought to love our enemy. And if anyone, if anyone uh, takes something from you, then you offer your cloak as well. And if they slap you in the face, you turn the other cheek to them as well. Jesus was, was offering this radically different way of life, and it threatened the powers that be. It threatened the empire. And so the empire made an example and a lesson of Jesus. This morning, as the people of God gathering around the cross to worship. We need to recognize this, that Jesus was murdered by an empire that took every opportunity to make an example of revolutionaries that would dare to threaten their rule. And this, after all, is how the Pax Romana was maintained. 
The only way that the peace of Rome could be maintained was to silence any threats and to make an example of anyone that would think about doing the same. And one of the ways that they would, one of the ways of doing this, one of the ways of making an example of these revolutionaries was, was to have them wear a sign that was announcing their crime as they carried their cross to their own death. And then to post the sign on the cross as this criminal died. The, the, the sign that they would wear and the sign that was posted uh, above them on the cross was, was essentially functioned as a threat. That if, if you dare to do the same crime, then this is what's going to happen to you. This, by the way, is what Jesus means, at least partly, when he says in the Gospels, take up your cross and follow me. This is not about the Christians in the world being long-suffering, although it could certainly mean that. But principally what it means to take up your cross and follow me is essentially to say, be willing to go against the ways of empire in favor of me and my kingdom. Be willing to be shamed because you are following the ways of Christ and not following the ways of of the empire, the Pax Romana. It's a revolutionary message, and it's no wonder that Jesus got in so much trouble for it. And the sign posted above the cross of Christ, the sign he is forced to wear is this, the king of the Jews. Now Rome, Rome is a smart oppressor. Uh, they want to make sure that everybody gets the message. And so let's not just post this sign in one language. Let's post it in three languages. And let's not go too far outside of the city to hang people on crosses. Let's do it near the city so that everyone can see and that everyone could read the crime that has been committed. And so Jesus wears this sign, the king of the Jews. What was Pilate up to when he did that? What we need to recognize is, is that this passage is absolutely thick with irony. Make no mistake, Pilate doesn't believe that Jesus is the king of the Jews any more than the Jews do. And so really as an act of mocking both Jesus and the Jewish community, Pilate writes the king of the Jews as the crime which Jesus has committed. But the irony is this. The irony is, of course, is that as Jesus dies on the cross, he is, in fact, establishing a kingdom that has no national or geographic boundaries. That in the act of dying, it is how Jesus embodies and inaugurates and begins the kingdom which he has been proclaiming since his birth. And so we see the irony. Oh, said tongue in cheek, the king of the Jews, and let's hang him to show that this whole movement has ended once and for all. And yet it is in his very dying that the movement has just begun. Are you with me? It's this, it's this beautiful picture of an unlikely Messiah. And so I would want to submit to you today this. 
that on the cross, Jesus was being enthroned as the world's ruler and the world's redeemer. That the throne of God looks like a wooden cross. Now this runs so counter to what we think about messiahs or gods or, 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 or kings or kingdoms. It runs so counter and then that's, that's really part of the point. <laughs> part of the point is that Jesus is in fact a king but he's, he's different than any other kind of king that the world has ever known up to that point and any, different than any kind of king that the world has known since that point. And so again we're brought to the place that again the, the cross stands at right in the middle of history. Not only for its significance of, of what it has done for all of humanity, but also in the significance of understanding true kingship and what it means to be a king. That Jesus is fundamentally different. That a throne doesn't look like a cross. And a crown doesn't look like thorns. And yet we find this to be true over and over and over again. That Jesus is fundamentally different, unique, and distinct from every other king in the world. And so as he is dying on the cross, he is actually being enthroned and crowned as king. And what happens in the, then in the resurrection is that it, it validates, it verifies everything that has happened on the cross. That if the resurrection hadn't happened, then yes, all you have is, is a dead revolutionary but with the resurrection, what you have is this movement, this moment that has changed history for all of time. And so Jesus is enthroned as the world's true king on the cross. But let me tell you this. Sometimes Christianity, sometimes Christianity is, is framed as though Christ will become ruler when he returns. Sometimes Christianity is, is framed as, as when Christ comes back, he's going to come back uh, as the king or, or become king when he comes back. And, 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 and then, just until then, we've got to just fight through the best way that we can or the best way that we know how. And I want to submit to you today that that simply is not the case. That part of the beauty and part of the irony and part of the depth of this passage is that as, as the sign above Jesus says, the king of the Jews, the part of the irony is that he isn't just king of the Jews. He's the king over the whole world. And he is enthroned right now. He is king right now. And he is over his own kingdom, the kingdom of Christ and so recognizing Christ as ruler over all the nations right now means taking his message seriously and walking in the ways of Christ here and now, lest we be guilty of walking in the ways of empire. And so to live in the reality that Christ is king over a kingdom that has no geographic boundaries and that, ha that no wall can be built to keep people out of this kingdom and there is no boundary that can be set to limit the love of God and no military can advance against this kingdom. It is the everlasting eternal kingdom of Christ and it is here, right here and right now, at least in part. Right? And part of the great hope of the Christianity, of Christianity, the blessed hope that we, we hope for is not that we will all be sucked into the sky and leave this place, but rather the blessed hope is that Christ will finally come down to establish his true reign right here. That's the blessed hope. 
is that what Christ has begun on the, in the cross and resurrection will be completed when he returns. And oh, how many times, how many times we diminish the power of the cross by presenting a faith that says Christ isn't yet king, but he will one day come back as king and then he will establish and then he will defeat evil and then he will do all this. And the good news of the cross of Jesus Christ is that evil is now already defeated. And we are called to live into this reality. And let me tell you, it is hard and laborious work, is it not? In fact, Paul will say this. He says, oh, we have to work out your own salvation. That's a way of saying be discerning about how to live into what is already true because what God has done on the cross, because of the death of Christ, work it out with great discernment and great effort so that not that you are saved by your works because you're not. You're saved by grace through faith and faith alone. But work out your own salvation of what this means to live in light of what is already true. And it's just this beautiful message. And so we are called then as the people of God to explore and to discern what what his kingdom looks like and then to pray for its coming. Let me say to you this, nations have flags to symbolize what they are all about, but the kingdom of God has the cross to symbolize what it is all about, which is self-sacrificial, enemy-embracing love of God. We need to make sure, church, that we have our symbols right. That we have our symbols right. That our primary symbol as the people of God is the cross of Christ. And what do we do? Each week we come and we sit at the foot of the cross as students. The fancy biblical word for that is disciples. And so we come, and, and, and each one of us, myself included, come as disciples to the foot of the cross every Sunday morning. We gather, seeking to understand all the implications of this radical way of Jesus. And it's easy, friends, to take, on, to take all of our own opinions and perspectives and influences and proclivities and preconceived notions and then try to make the cross fit into those. But the call of the disciple of Jesus Christ is to allow the cross to form our thinking, not to form our thinking to the cross, but to begin our thinking with the cross of Jesus Christ, this central part of our faith this central symbol of what it means to be Christian is to take what is this thing about the cross and let's form all of our thinking about God and about others and about ourselves and let's center it on the cross. Amen? And so I want to talk to you very briefly this morning about just that. About how does the cross form our thinking that if we are going to be disciples who sit at the foot of the cross and and allow the cross to form our thinking, then let's allow it first to inform our thinking about God. I don't know what comes to your mind or or what happens in your heart or, or, or your emotions when you just even hear the word God but you no doubt have some sort of 
some sort of reaction or some, sort of, some kind of picture that, that arises up in you. And it, and it might be just a flat rejection of God doesn't exist or God doesn't do any good or, or, or God, if he does exist, is, is absent. Wh- whatever our thinking about God is, I, I want to encourage you that if, if the cross informs our thinking about God, then it at least says this, that God is supremely revealed in Jesus Christ on the cross. That if you want to know what God is like, it is like a picture of the crucified Messiah gaining victory over all of evil. So God is supremely revealed in Christ on the cross. God is love poured out. God is forgiving of enemies. God is mercy. And if you'll remember way back when, when the weather was warm, (laughs) we talked about John chapter 1 verse 18 and he says, no one has ever seen God but his one and only son has made him known. That's how he begins the gospel. In other words, what John has been trying to say to us all along as we've walked through this gospel, what John has been trying to say to us all along is, he's trying to say, this is what God is like. God is like Jesus. This is who Jesus is. This is what God is like. This is what God looks like. And what God, and so throughout the gospel, we hear story after story of, of the ministry of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, and we begin to get a sense of what God is like. God is for the oppressed and underprivileged. God is for the healing of the sick. God is for the prisoner. God is self-sacrificial love. And too often we want to bend God to the favor of the, uh, to, to favor the agenda of the privileged. I want to say that again. Too often we try to bend God to favor the privilege, uh, the agenda of the privileged. But that says a lot more about us than it does about God. For the clear evidence of Scripture is that God is supremely revealed in Christ on the cross. And so whatever pictures that we've had of of God up to this point, and I'm not so naive to think that in a few moments on a Sunday morning we could could just cast out all incorrect images of God that we've had, but but I wonder if we could take a moment today just in in quiet reflection, and it's going to be uncomfortable, but we're going to do it again this morning. (laughs) So we'll do it this time, and then we'll do it again, and it'll be uncomfortable because it'll be silent, and our culture isn't silent and doesn't know what to do with silence. And so it'll feel uncomfortable, but in those moments, I, I want to just, could we be so bold as just to engage with God and allow the cross of Christ to form and to shape our view of who God is. And so let's take a few moments and allow any view of God that is contrary to God as he was revealed in the crucified Christ to disappear in light of the tremendous love that God has for humanity. That he would be willing to appear so ugly and shamed while taking on our sin. And I want to say to you, church, this is what God is like. This is the true picture of God. Let's take just a few moments of silence to ponder this.
Heavenly Father, today our vision, what we see in our mind's eye when we think of royalty, has everything to do with extravagance, abundance, beauty. And yet, we recognize today, God, that the truest picture of the royalty of Christ and the kingship of Christ is your willingness to take on our sin and in taking on our sin, being shamed and becoming ugly so that we might bear the righteousness of Christ. God, may whatever picture we have when we think of you be formed, be shaped by the picture of you we are given in Christ on the cross. Amen. You know, the cross also informs and forms our thinking about other people. Christ is the world's redeemer. And so we recognize, and when we look at the cross, and when we gaze upon the cross, and when the cross really forms our thinking, then we are to recognize that there is a shared humanity among all people, regardless of race or culture or wealth. And so when we look at the cross, and if we really allow the cross to inform our thinking, we'll recognize that all the lines that we try to draw to separate and distinguish myself from other people, Jesus Christ is actively er racing. That, that whatever lines I'm trying to draw to create a bubble around myself, Jesus is following around with a heavenly eraser, right? And just erasing those lines and saying, oh, there you go again. And then, and then a circumstance or a thought or, or some kind of truth or something will come across and we'll realize God is erasing those lines. And here's what it usually takes. It usually takes only a story of someone whom we had demonized previously. And as soon as we hear their story, we recognize, oh, I should not have drawn that line. I'm so captured by the line of the song by the brilliance that says this, when I look into the face of my enemy, I see my brother. That's a prophetic word for the church. If we could grab a hold of that, if we could learn to just make that a reality. When I look into the face of my enemy, I see my brother. Someone else has said, an enemy is someone whose story we don't yet know. Which is to say, as soon as you hear their story, it humanizes them. And it's really hard to become enemies with someone that you, that you haven't categorized. Right? Largely speaking... What we demonize are the things that we categorize. And as long as we throw people into a category, and as long as we allow ourselves to do that, oh, they are that way, or they belong in that camp, or they're this thing, or that political affiliation, or that kind of lifestyle, or this, then as soon as we put people into a a category, we can dehumanize them. But as soon as we enter into relationship with them, and as soon as we hear their story, then all of a sudden it humanizes them, and we recognize they're not that different than me. 
Because guess what? I got all kinds of stuff going on in my life. I got all kinds of stuff going on in my heart. And my life, well, as best as I try to project this beautiful, clean image, particularly on Sunday mornings in church, right, as much as I try to project this beautiful image, I got some stuff going on. And, and guess what? They do too. And so as long as we can hear their story, it humanizes them. And what the cross shows us more than anything is that Christ is the ruler and redeemer over all of humanity. I don't think we would dare to admit it, but I wonder if sometimes we really limit the work of Christ on the cross. Salvation is available to people who are like me and just have an openness to faith. But that isn't true. Salvation is, I think, far greater and far bigger than maybe we have ever dared to dream or to think. I want to take a few moments again in silence to think about a group that maybe you have categorized and therefore dehumanized. And if the cross is going to form our thinking about others, we must begin, to, we must begin by seeing their humanity. Someone for whom Christ died, just like me. Let's take a few moments. God over all of creation, redeemer of all humanity, how often we are tempted to demonize and categorize people so that we can write them off, so that we can uh, silence their voices, so that we can move on and not worry about it. God, we repent. Help us to see the shared humanity of all people. People for whom you have died. For God, today the cross at which we sit as disciples shows us and teaches us that you are the redeemer over all people, all of creation. And God, how we work this out will be different for each one of us. And so I just pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be at work, challenging us, convicting us, moving us. Um, maybe there's a particular group that we have dehumanized. God, stir in us to see their shared humanity. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And then finally, the cross forms our thinking about ourselves. Did you know this morning that you are the beloved of God? That by faith, you are the righteousness of Christ? Christ? 
Have you really come to grips with the reality, the beautiful good news, that you are one of God's image bearers in the world? That when God said, oh, I would like to reflect my image to the world, what should I do? He chose you. And he chose me. That with all of your gifts and your personality mix and all of your story, both good and bad, gathered up together, that lived, lived out correctly and rightly bears the image of God in the world. That is no small thing. You are the beloved of Christ. You are the righteousness of Christ. You are one of God's image bearers in the world. But if you are anything like me, you want to measure yourself against a whole set of impossible standards. And we have often have, as the people of God, we often have two kinds of standards by which we're trying to measure up. We have the Christian standards. We want to be praying a certain amount. We want to be doing a certain amount of, of, of good in the world, social justice. And, and so we think about the holiness and the righteousness of the fathers who have gone before, the church fathers and mothers. And we think about uh, our own fathers and mothers. If they were really good and set a good example, we think about their example. And, and all, on, all, on this All Saints Sunday, it's easy to, to look at the saints who have gone before and say, oh, I'll never measure up. And so we, we compare ourselves and we say, I, I fall short of the holiness of Paul and St. Francis or Teresa or their modern contemporaries. And so in relation to faithfulness and holiness, I fall short. I will never measure up. How many times have we said, I'll never be as good as them? And so on a holiness standard, we set ourselves, we say, oh, I fall short. But we have a whole other set of standards. Maybe we can redeem ourselves by the other set of standards. And that standard is the world's standards, right? And so then, after having decided that we fall short on the holiness and righteousness scale, or we, we fall short in the Christian view, then we kind of go over here and we say, can I, can, I, uh, can I measure myself against the standards of cool in the world? If I can't be righteous, at least I can be cool. And then we recognize, and I'm looking around at all of you, and I'm saying, you fall short. <laughs> you don't quite make it. And neither do I, right? It's like we measure ourselves against the standards of cool in the world. What is, there, what is my sense of style, the shape of my body, the success of my career? And then as we look at all these kinds of standards, we recognize and we decide that indeed we fall short again. And it's like, man, if I can't be righteous or holiness enough, or holy enough to, to meet the, standard, the Christian standard, and I'm not cool enough to meet the culture standard, then guess what? I'm not worth anything. God must not love me. If he loved me, he would at least make me cool. <laughs> I would at least be popular if God loved me. God, I could receive your love a lot more if I had a whole bunch of it coming this way, Right? But if we allow the cross to form our thinking, then here's the answer. Here's what the cross says. The cross says, there is no metric. There's no measuring stick. Like, 
It doesn't exist. The whole game that you're trying to play, whether it's on the world, via faith standards or the, or, or the world standards, God says if we allow the cross to form our thinking, what God says is throw the whole system out. And we're like, I, I can't even comprehend how to think in that way. But God says, no, throw the whole system out. There is no metric. You are God's image bearer. You are the beloved of Christ. He has called you his own. He invites you into relationship. There is no measure by which he, that you can measure his love for you. There is only love. There is only love. It's not love up to a certain point. It's not love when you do this. It's not love, but it's not love. And there is only Christ's love poured out for you on the cross. And if we will allow the cross to form our thinking, church, we will recognize that the whole system of comparing ourselves, God wants us to throw it away. And God just wants to say, I love you. I died for you. I bore your sin. I bore your shame so that you might participate in my own righteousness. And I'm convinced, I'm not there, but I am intellectually convinced that part of receiving the righteousness of Christ is being, away, being able to just throw the whole system out of comparison and just say, I am who God made me to be. And if I live faithfully, if I live for him, then I will bear his image in the world. And that's good news. Some of you need to hear today, there is no measuring stick. You've lived with this metric your entire life. And God just wants to say to you, throw it out. There is only love for you. Amen? The cross is the center of our faith. And if we will allow it to form our thinking, we will recognize that the cross radically shapes and forms our thinking about who God is about who we are, and about others as well. Amen? Amen. Let's say a word of prayer, and I'll lead us to the Lord's table today. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness to us, your love poured out on the cross, the absolute central piece of our faith. May all of our thinking be formed and shaped by the cross of Christ. And God, we know there's a long road to go that that's challenging and that, that, that moves us in a lot of directions that we may not even be comfortable with. But God, sanctify our imaginations. Move our hearts in the direction that we might recognize that this is what kingship looks like. This is what your royalty, your strength, your power, your mercy and forgiveness looks like is Christ on the cross. God, thank you. Be with us. As we come to the table today, may we experience your love anew. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.